Thank you for that great anthem, and a special thanks to Julie Wong, who's our pianist today. Uh, Lisa Edwards is off on another gig, and uh, so we're grateful, Julie, to have you here. Thank you for filling in. How many of you had trick-or-treaters last night at your house? Well, quite a few of you. We had, we had a number, which is unusual because ours is the only house on the block. So you have to kind of go out of your way to come and visit our house. But we uh, <clears throat> have three grandsons, and two of them went out last night as Peter Pan. One in North Carolina and the other in Nashville, Tennessee. So we only had a chance to participate in this by video and pictures that they sent to us. Uh, so Peter Pan was a big one this year. Um, a couple years ago, though, our eldest grandson, Elliot, was here on the West Coast, and we had a chance to go trick-or-treating with him. Our daughter, uh, Megan, had, was living in South Pasadena, and she invited her nephew and his folks to come over for Halloween for a little celebration, and then we went through South Pasadena trick-or-treating. This was Elliot's first experience of this. And we came to one house in particular that had gone to some great lengths to, to create a scary scene. And it included on the porch of the house this sort of half body with uh, a, a ghoulish-looking zombie kind of creature that had lights in his eyes and all of that and one hand trying to crawl along the porch and... Elliot did not know what to do with this thing and was scared to death, at, at least at the beginning. But when he realized that this was all for fun, he was three years old at the time, and he just kept saying, more scary, more scary. <laughs> this is All Saints Day, and it is the reason we celebrate Halloween. All Hallows' Eve, on the eve of All Saints Day. And our story this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John, and it's a bit of a scary story because it deals with death. And here we have this story of Jesus encountering Martha and Mary and bringing Lazarus back to life. I invite you to listen with me to this story from the Gospel of John. Now when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and she said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind? Could he, could not he who has opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Well, then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone was lying against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, Already there's a stench because he's been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
So they took away the stone. And Jesus looked upwards and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I've said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he'd said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet bound with strips of cloth, his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. May God speak to us this day by his word. Death is scary. I think my earliest memory, really, of death was when I was in high school. I participated in a high school class that once a week would go off campus and we would visit the University of Minnesota Hospital where we were exploring vocations in healthcare. So every week, along with a number of other classmates, we'd go over to the university hospitals. On one afternoon, for instance, we had a chance to see open-heart surgery. We were up in the observatory, and I'm old enough that this was back in the days where they actually had to cut through the sternum and put a spreader on the chest and open it up so they could get at the heart. And I remember looking down at all of this thinking, oh, that guy is going to be so sore tomorrow. On another occasion, uh, we had a chance to visit the morgue. And I was in high school, 16, 17 years old, and I wanted to be tough, and, but it was frightening to see a corpse. Uh, in this particular situation, it was an autopsy that was be, being performed on this body, and I watched as... The physician cut through the cranium with a small saw and then lifted the top of the head off to expose the brain. It was frightening. Uh, but it was still distant, and I could keep it at a distance. This was something that happened out there somewhere. It was shortly after I got married that death began, began to become a little closer to home. My grandfather passed away, and, uh, and I was very close to my grandfather and was asked to speak at his memorial service. Uh, and then, a few years later, my father passed away. It was 1994, and our children were young at that point. In fact, our son was about eight years old at the time. My wife and I had a long discussion about what was age-appropriate for a child to be exposed to his grandfather's death, and we had a viewing with an open casket and then the service of two memorial services, one on the West Coast and one back in Minnesota, and I, I, it was probably not the best decision. We thought it would be good for the children to be exposed to this, to know that this is a part of life. But to this day, our son cannot stand the smell of lilies because the association with that open casket is so powerful 
the smell just immediately, he reacts to it. We all confront death at some point in our lives. And we all have memories of those we have loved who have died. So this story in John's Gospel is not entirely unfamiliar to us. This, however, is not the death of a grandparent. It's not the death of a parent. It's the death of a brother. It's a more tragic death, perhaps. Kind of death that brings itself closer to us. Most of the time we distance ourselves from this reality. We exclude the idea from our worldview. After all, most of us are trying to make our way in life. We battle for a place in the world. We struggle to be visible. We struggle to have a place in our families or to find a place in our communities to find a place in the profession that we've chosen, a place where we belong. We battle for a place in the sun, not a place in a tomb. And this is one kind of battle that we're engaged in. It's the, it's the battle of flesh and blood, if you will. It's the battle that we are all engaged in to get ahead. But there's another battle that we're up against. <coughs> We fight for a life with meaning, a life of significance. Here we don't just contend with flesh and blood. As Paul puts it in the New Testament, we're contending against principalities and powers of the present darkness. This is the battle to be whole. This is the battle we're engaged in to be at home in our own skin. It's a battle not of conquest of the world, but liberation of ourselves. We seek to liberate ourselves and in so doing to increase our capacity for forgiveness and for caring about others, to be who we feel God has called us to be, what God has created us to be. The goals of power and of success and security are only weak substitutes for this kind of liberation that we all seek. The goal of becoming who we are made to be and what we are made for. Dr. Bernie Siegel writes in his book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, about his cancer patients. And he couldn't help but notice that his patients often responded quite differently to their cancer treatments. And he wondered why. Why is it that some people just have a desire to live and other people just don't? What makes the difference? It's not the chemicals that they put into the body. It's something else. And he finally concludes in the book, There is no sin in dying. We all die. The problem is when we don't live until we die. The fear of death can get to me before death actually takes my body. The fear of death can take my dreams 
It can take my goals. It can take the possibilities of life long before it affects my body. Now, truth be known, I feel a little bit sorry for Lazarus because he had to go through the whole experience twice. Most of us are frightened to go through it once. But this poor guy had to do it a second time. Many of you know who Ted Turner is, CNN Ted Turner. Once he was interviewed on Larry King Live. And he said, you know, life is like a B-grade movie. You don't really want to get up and leave halfway through, but you don't want to see it again either. But for Lazarus, he had to go through the ordeal twice. Jesus said, Lazarus has fallen asleep. He used a Greek word which can be either sleeping or death. A word from which we get our word cemetery. But his disciples, not really knowing what he was saying, thought that he meant the sleep of, that he was just uh, naturally sleeping. So to clear things up, Jesus then uses a different Greek word which leaves no ambiguity. Lazarus is dead. There's a terrible finality about those words. For Jesus, death is no adventure that comes following the adventure of life. He talked about death as a terrifying, wrenching apart of relationships. Death leaves people numb and empty, sometimes bitter, especially for those who go on living. Death creates that eerie quiet that you sometimes hear in the cemetery, and it suggests that, yes, this will happen to you too. Jesus goes to Bethany, one of his favorite places, the place where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It's only about two miles from Jerusalem. Martha, the busy one, rushes out to meet him on the road. Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. If if only. Doesn't that word if always accompany tragedy? If only he hadn't gone down that road, that car accident wouldn't have happened. If only somebody had been with her and could have called 9-11, they could have saved her. If only I had been there, I could have done something. So I can't blame Martha for asking the question, if only you'd been here, Lord. In every sense, that if only is a legitimate question, but it's also a useless question. Useless because regardless of the if, Martha and Mary still lost Lazarus. They still had to look across the breakfast table in the morning at an empty chair. 
they still had to look into the empty room where he stayed. If is inevitable, and it's haunting, but it's futile. It comes out of the events that we believe should have happened differently. I tell myself that things could have been different if life were fair or if I had more control. So Jesus says, your brother will rise again. I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day, she says. But Jesus isn't talking about something that is off in the future, some distant event towards which all of creation seems to be moving. He's talking about right here and right now. The present tense. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And then to prove he's not just talking symbolically or using some preacher's hyperbole, he does something that is so earth-shaking and so totally hair-raising that the Jerusalem authorities immediately call for his arrest. You see, the story's getting more scary, as Elliot would say. More scary. Lazarus, come out. And the unthinkable happened. Lazarus inched his way out of that tomb, wrapped in the burial clothes with a wrap around his face like the mummy. Something right out of Halloween. Now twice in the story, Jesus was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And I don't think it was just because he saw Martha and Mary's tears or their grief or their loss. I don't think it was just because he loved Lazarus. Something deeper appears to be taking place in the story. It's not just about the grief that comes with death. What troubles Jesus is what's really taking place, not just what appears to be taking place. Jesus knows that to get Lazarus out of that tomb, he has to place himself in it. From this time onward in the story, there's a warrant for his arrest and a subpoena for anyone who knows anything about his whereabouts to report him. And underneath, Jesus seems to know and to understand that this act that he's about to perform with Lazarus will seal his own fate. So quite literally, Jesus is exchanging his own life for the life of Lazarus. So what's the point? Now the point seems to me that no matter what happens in life, no matter what tragedies we experience, all those times that we wonder if only things had turned out differently, Jesus Christ remains the resurrection and the life and brings life in the midst of all the things that destroy life.
that deny life, that subvert life, that undermine life. No matter what the tragedies in my life that are marked by the if only, Jesus is still prepared to trade his life for my own and for yours. And it isn't just the future that we're talking about. It's not just the end of life. It's the life we experience now in the present. Where we face all kinds of things that are life-denying and life-ending. The things that we resign within ourselves. The things we turn off. What dies within us long before we take our last breath. All that we feel leaves us with meaninglessness. I know lots of people who have been knocked down in life. Physically, economically, morally, spiritually, and they get back up. They have no business being where they are, but there they are. Back in the days when I used to do a lot of backpacking and climbing you get up above timber which is like 9,700 feet and nothing much grows above that but all of a sudden you'll come across a rock and here's a tree growing out of the midst of nothing and you wonder how did this get here it seems to have tapped into a source of life that doesn't belong here but I know people like that and you know people like that too You wonder how they endure and what in the world it is that has gotten them where they are. I think that's what Paul is talking about in Corinthians when he writes to this young, struggling church and he says this, This priceless treasure we hold, so to speak, in common earthenware jars. To show that the splendid power of it belongs to God and not to us. We are handicapped on all sides, but we're never frustrated. We're puzzled, but never in despair. We're persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we're never knocked out. Every day we experience something of the death of Jesus so that we may also know the power of the life of Jesus in these bodies that are ours. That's what Lazarus experienced. That's what Martha and Mary experienced. And that's what countless people have experienced since this first experience of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So my question to all of us this morning is, what is it that keeps us from life? From the life that God intends for each one of us? What is it that holds us back? What, if only, do we keep rehearsing as an excuse for not getting on with living? Well, we're in the presence of the one who's the resurrection and the life.
It's not just something distant. It's something present. Maybe it's time for you and me to come out. To begin to live again. To be unbound by the power of God and to live by that power and grace that is ours in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen.